beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his word, the Lord makes great and wonderful promises to us. Through Christ, he has adopted us as his sons and daughters. We may know God as our faithful father who loves us deeply. He has promised to bless us, to provide us with all our needs. In Christ, he has promised to wash away all our sins. God has promised to dwell in us by his spirit, renewing us and guiding us in his ways. In our journey of life, God has also promised to be with us. He has promised never to leave us or forsake us. He has promised life with him not only now, but forevermore. Again and again in the scriptures, the Lord promises himself and all his blessings to us. Yet God's gracious promises are not always a reality in our lives. We live in a sin-stained world that's under God's curse. We undergo struggles financially and in our relationships. We suffer sickness, pain, anxiety, and depression. There's times when we struggle to cope with the circumstances facing us in our lives. We experience sadness, loneliness, brokenness, even death. During our struggles and sorrows, we sometimes wonder if God's promises are real. If God has promised so many blessings, why don't I experience them in my life? At times, like Job, we struggle more with why bad stuff is happening in our lives than with the bad stuff itself. We simply don't understand God's plans and purposes for us. In Jacob's life, we've seen the Lord reaffirm his gracious promises to Jacob time and again. One of the things God promised Jacob was that he would make him into a company of peoples. The Lord promises to Jacob when he first appeared to him in a dream at Bethel. And he reaffirmed this promise when Jacob returned to Bethel. When God promises to make Jacob into a company of peoples, he uses a Hebrew word which means assembly or congregation. In the New Testament, the Greek word for church is used. In previous generations, God chose one member of the family to bear the line of promise. He sovereignly chose Isaac over Ishmael and Jacob over Esau. But now something has changed. God promised to make Jacob into a community, a congregation. He chose all 12 of Jacob's sons and was promising to make them into a community of peoples, into the nation of Israel. Our text begins a new section of Genesis dealing with the generations of Jacob. Although God promised to make Jacob's family into a community and into one nation, there is little unity within this family. Genesis 37 uses the term brother or brothers 
21 times. But there is little brotherly love in this story. Joseph is one of the youngest of Jacob's sons. Jacob doted on Joseph because he was the son of his old age. His brothers did not appreciate the favoritism that Jacob showed to Joseph. They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Joseph had dreams about being a ruler over his family. This caused his brothers to hate him all the more. Our text shows how they planned to kill him, but how in the end they sold him into slavery instead. Our text shows a stark difference between God's promise to make Jacob's family into a community and the reality of hatred and division that existed among the brothers. On the one hand, we see God appearing to Joseph in a dream, promising to make him ruler over the brothers. And on the other hand, we see him sold into slavery to Midianite traders. And we wonder, where is God? He's not mentioned in Genesis 37. And yet, quietly, God is working to accomplish his purposes. I preach to you the word of God under the following theme. God uses the sinful deeds of Joseph's brothers to begin fulfilling his plan of making Joseph a ruler for their benefit. We'll consider how Joseph is promised rulership over his brothers and how Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. Jacob settled in the land of Canaan. He and his sons were shepherds who earned their livelihood by looking after flocks and herds. Our text and the rest of Genesis puts much emphasis on one of Jacob's sons, on Joseph. At 17 years of age, he was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy among men. Our text mentions he was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilphah, his father's concubines. These women were the maidservants of Leah and Rachel. These brothers would have had a lower rank in Jacob's family than the sons of Jacob's wives, Leah and Rachel. Joseph was the son of Rachel, the woman whom Jacob really loved. Now, Joseph brought a bad report about his brothers to their father. In English, a bad report can be either true or false. Yet in Hebrew, this phrase suggests a false or malicious report. The ten spies brought the same kind of bad report to the people of Israel, telling them that Canaan was not worth fighting for. In Proverbs 10.18, it's translated slander. Perhaps Joseph didn't like being a servant to his brothers. Perhaps he was just trying to suck up to his father. Yet he brought a fabricated or exaggerated account of his brother's misdeeds to their father. Joseph played a part in the divisions that developed in Jacob's household. Yet the main reason for much of the friction between Jacob's sons was that he showed favoritism to 
Joseph. Our text tells us that Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Jacob had grown up in a family where favoritism was shown. While his father loved Esau, his mother loved him. Like many children, Jacob was perpetuating the dysfunctional relationships he experienced as a child in his own family. It is not healthy when parents love one child more than another, or when they show favoritism in how they deal with their kids. It leads to envy and jealousy, creates disharmony in family life. We might think that the reason why Jacob loved Joseph more than his other sons was because Joseph was the son of Rachel, whom he loved. Yet our text highlights another reason It says that he was the son of his old age. Part of this may be that as one of the youngest boys, Jacob doted on Joseph. Yet the phrase, the son of his old age, links Joseph with Isaac, the child that Sarah bore to Abraham in his old age. Isaac was the son through whom God would fulfill all his promises to Abraham. What our text suggests is that Jacob loved Joseph because he saw him as being the one through whom God's promises would be fulfilled. Jacob makes his favoritism clear by making Joseph a robe of many colors. The translation of many colors comes from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Hebrew term used here is used only one other time in the Bible. In 2 Samuel 13, verse 18, there it refers to Tamer, the daughter of King David, wearing a robe with long sleeves. There's a suggestion that this was some kind of royal robe. Whatever kind of robe it was, it certainly was not the type of robe you would wear if you were planning to work. What our text makes clear is that while earlier Joseph had pastured the flock with his brothers, now he has received an elevated position in the family. They still had to work, but their tattletaling little brother has gained a favored position in Jacob's household. Later in our text, we see that Joseph no longer goes out with his brothers to pasture the sheep. Instead, Jacob sends him to check on his brothers, and to bring back a report about them to their dad. Jacob's favoritism towards Joseph had a bad effect on his brothers. Our text says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Joseph's brothers were not only envious of the love their father extended toward him, Their jealousy turned to hatred. Their hearts were black toward their brother. Just seeing him made them frustrated and angry. Their hatred was so deep they could not speak peacefully with Joseph. Normally you would expect family members to love each other and to get along. Yet this family has become a war zone. The brothers could not even speak civilly to Joseph. 
It's in this situation that Joseph had a dream. When he told his brothers they hated, me, they hated him even more. In Joseph's dream, there were, they were binding sheaves of grain in the field. Joseph's sheaf arose and stood upright, while his brother's sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to this sheaf. Now, the interpretation of this dream is not difficult. Joseph's brothers get the point clearly. They ask, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? Jacob had already elevated Joseph to a prominent position in the family. Now his dream suggested that Joseph, their younger brother, a mere boy, would rule over them. This dream did not help family relationships. Our text says that the brothers hated him even more for his dream and for his words. But that's not the end of the matter. Joseph has another dream in which the sun, moon, and 11 stars bowed down before him. When he told his father and brothers, even his dad was offended by it. What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Our text relates how Joseph's brothers were jealous. But it says that his father kept this saying in mind. It reminds us of the time the shepherds came to the stable in Bethlehem where Jesus was born. They spoke of how angels had appeared to them bringing the message that he was the Savior who was Christ the Lord. Luke tells us that Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. We need to understand, beloved, that in the days of the patriarchs, the Bible was not yet written. One of the means by which God communicated with his people was through visions and dreams. At Bethel, the Lord had appeared to Jacob in a dream. He had revealed his promises concerning the future to Jacob. In this last part of Genesis, dreams always come in pairs. Think of the dreams of Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker. Think of Pharaoh's dreams of seven thin cows eating up seven sleek cows and seven thin ears of grain eating up seven healthy and good grains, heads of grain. There's a reason why these dreams come in pairs. A single dream could be just an idle fantasy. Yet as Joseph tells Pharaoh in Genesis 41, verse 32, the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. By means of these dreams, the Lord was communicating something important to Joseph and to the rest of his family. The Lord was promising that Joseph would be put in a ruling position over his brothers. One day he would be in a place of authority and honor, and his family would bow down to him. In patriarchal times, this was unheard of. Children showed honor and respect toward parents, and young people toward their elders. 
Yet just as God had chosen Isaac over his older brother Ishmael and Jacob over his older twin Esau, so in our text he chooses Jacob for a special task he has ordained for him. Why was the Lord making these things known to Joseph? Well, beloved, God knew that Joseph was going to need his promises to get through the hard times that would soon follow. Jacob was in, sorry, Joseph was in for a long and difficult trial. The Lord's word to him would become his anchor. Joseph would hold fast God's promises when everything else went bad in his life. It would have been so easy for Joseph to dwell on his difficult circumstances, to conclude that God had forsaken him. But instead, he believed God's promises and trusted his faithfulness. We can learn from that. God, our Heavenly Father, has made great and glorious promises to us. He has adopted us as his dearly loved children, and he has promised to provide all our needs. In Christ, he has promised to wash away all our sins, and through the Spirit, he has promised to renew our lives. God has promised he will never leave us or forsake us. He has promised a glorious inheritance to all his children. He has said, we will reign with him eternally over all creatures. Yet we live in a fallen and broken world. We don't always experience God's loving care. We're confronted with illness, with pain, with brokenness, with hardships and sorrows. And sometimes these things go on month after month and year after year. We see God blessing others around us, but we don't feel like he's providing for me. We struggle with certain sins and temptations. And at times it seems like Satan and our sinful flesh have the upper hand. It can seem like God is just so far away, like he has forsaken us. We can undergo great trials on the pathway of suffering to glory. And then, beloved, the only way to truly cope is to put our hope and trust in God and in his rich promises. Hope is an anchor for our souls, firm and secure. When we focus on God and his word, our fears will dwindle. Our sense of need will diminish. And our doubts will be cleared away. In our first point, we've seen how Joseph is promised rulership over his brothers. In our second point, we'll consider how Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. Our text continues by relating how, jo how Jacob's sons took their flocks to Shechem and how Jacob sent Joseph to see if it was well with them and to bring him word. From Hebron to Shechem was a distance of about 80 kilometers. And when Joseph got there, his brothers had moved on. 
A man found him wandering in the fields looking for his brothers. From him, Joseph learned that his brothers had departed for Dothan, which was another 25 kilometers further through hilly country. There, Joseph found his brothers. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Joseph's brothers were dangerous men. Remember that Simeon and Levi had massacred the unsuspecting men of Shechem after the prince of this town had raped their sister. In a power grab, their older brother Reuben had slept with his father's concubine, thereby trying to seize the leadership from Jacob over his family. Remember also how much these men hated Joseph. Their desire to kill him should come as no surprise to us. Our text explains why they wanted to kill him. They said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Joseph's dreams still stick in their craw. By killing Joseph, they think they can kill his dreams, that they, the older brothers, would bow down to this young upstart. Not all the brothers agreed. Reuben was the oldest, and he felt some responsibility to his brother. He suggested that instead of killing Joseph, they should just throw him into a nearby pit. The text makes it clear that Reuben's intention was to rescue Joseph and to restore him to his father. The brothers agreed. When Joseph drew near, they stripped him of that special robe and they threw him into an empty water cistern. As they were eating, a caravan of Ishmaelite traders appeared, traveling from Gilead to Egypt. Judah suggested that instead of killing Joseph, they sell him to these traders. He argued that they should not lay their hands on Joseph, for after all, he was their own brother, their own flesh and blood. At this time, Reuben was absent. Perhaps he was watching over the sheep. We see that through the intervention of Reuben and Judah, Jacob's sons were prevented from the sin of murder yet they were guilty of stealing. The worst, the worst sin against the commandment, you shall not steal, was kidnapping someone and selling them for profit. Today we would call this human trafficking. Joseph's brother sold him into slavery for a mere 20 shekels of silver. By doing so, they robbed Joseph of the opportunity to grow up in his own family, among his own people. Later in the law of Moses, such sin was punishable by death. When Reuben finds out what his brothers have done, he tore his clothes and he said to his brothers, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? As the oldest son, he's responsible for Joseph. What will he say to his father? What will they say to Jacob? The brothers decide to deceive their old father. 
They go back to their plan to say that a wild animal has devoured him. But instead of saying this, they slaughtered a goat and dipped Joseph's special robe in its blood. They told Jacob they had found it. They asked him to identify it. It's ironic that Jacob's sons seek to deceive their old father with their brother's robe and goat's blood. Just as Jacob had earlier used his brother Esau's garments and two little goats to deceive his old and blind father. Jacob falls for the deception. He gasps, it's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Jacob is heartbroken. He tore his garments and put on sackcloth, and he mourned for his son for many days. Our text says that all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. He said he would go to his death mourning. Do you see the effects of the sin that Joseph's brothers committed? It separated one of their younger brothers from communion of their family. They sold him as a slave into bondage in Egypt. They brought their father Jacob such grief he was inconsolable. Imagine trying to comfort Jacob, knowing that you were responsible for all the sorrow he suffered day after day. The brothers also created a rift between them. Reuben had wanted to spare his brother, but the rest had agreed to sell him as a slave. Through their sin, this dysfunctional family was thrown into great turmoil. This sin would haunt them for decades to come. And yet, beloved, the bigger question is, where was God in all of this? Was he sleeping? Didn't he care about Jacob's family? Why didn't he protect Joseph from being captured and sold into slavery? It's worth noting that the name of God is never mentioned in Genesis 37. Yet as we read the account of all that happens, we see that God's sovereign hand was at work. God had a plan for Joseph's life. He needed him in Egypt with access to Pharaoh's palace. So God directed all that happened according to his divine plan. Please consider, beloved, the coincidences that had to occur to get Joseph off to Egypt. First, Jacob needed to send, his, to send Joseph to check on his brothers. Then, Joseph needed to meet that man at Shechem, who had happened to hear that his brothers were going to Dothan. If the brothers had stayed in Shechem, Joseph would easily have found them, and they would not have been on the main camel route down to Egypt. 
it just so happened that when they were eating lunch, a caravan of traders happened to pass by. Days and weeks could pass by between caravans, but this one appeared just when the brothers were deciding what to do with Jacob, and just when Reuben was absent. This caravan was bound for Egypt and not some other destination. All these things had to happen in exactly the right order and at just the right time to get Joseph down to where God needed him. Neither Joseph's brothers nor Joseph understood this at the time. The brothers were guilty of human trafficking, and Joseph was a victim of their sin. The point I want to make is that God's redemptive ways are not our ways. Which of us would choose to grow up in a dysfunctional family? Who would choose to be sold as a slave and carried off to some alien culture? None of us would choose that. Yet that was God's perfect plan for Joseph's life. In our own lives, we easily assume that when abuse takes place, or when relationships fall apart, or when traumatic sins blight our lives, that God must be absent. Nothing is further from the truth certainly true that God hates sin and abuse. God neither causes sin nor condones it. James tells us in James 1 that God is not the author of sin. He shows how we are responsible for our own sins, how they flow forth from our own wicked hearts. Yet what we need to understand, beloved, is that God's redemptive pathways often involve sin. God does not lead our lives around all conflict, abuse, divorce, broken families, or even away from every expression and outworking of our own sinful natures. Instead, His perfect plan for our lives often leads us right through the eye of the storm, where our dysfunction and sin along with that of our family and friends, is on full display. God allows us to undergo trials and tribulations that he might display his sovereign grace and mercy to us and in our lives. God needed to prepare Joseph for the future in store for him. At this time, Joseph was a brash, overconfident, self-centered young man. He was not ready for the leadership role God had in store for him. Joseph's pathway would involve not just being sold into slavery or having to endure separation from home and family. He would be falsely accused of wrongdoing and thrown into prison. He would languish there, neglected and forgotten, by the man he had helped. Through all these hardships, God taught Joseph 
to rely on Him, to trust in His gracious provision. Beloved, if we look at Joseph's life, we see how he became a slave and how he suffered much before God exalted him to a rulership position. Though he did not know it, Joseph was going through an experience that would become a major theme in the Bible. Isaiah speaks of how the godly servant would be despised and rejected, only to become a rescuer of those who abused him. Paul talks in Philippians 2 about our Lord Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but who humbled himself and became a servant, and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had to undergo all this in order to pay for our sins and to restore us in a relationship with God. Jesus, too, walked the pathway of suffering before God exalted him and made him king over all. Beloved, just like Joseph and just like Christ, God is leading our lives according to his sovereign will. He has a plan for each of our lives, and it's good, even though we don't always see that. If you are confronted with trials and sorrows, if you're undergoing deep struggles in your life, please don't think that God is absent, that he doesn't care, or that he's forsaken you. Remember all the gracious promises that God has made to you in his word, that he has confirmed to you at your baptism. Let your hope in God and his grace in Christ be an anchor for your souls, that you too will be able to persevere through suffering, and you'll attain the glory that God has promised to all who love him. Amen. In response to the gospel message, we'll sing our praises to our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll do so with the words of hymn 23. Mm-hmm.